Well, good morning again. If you're uh, visiting us this morning here at the Gathering Church, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've uh, joined us this morning. We're going through a series right now that we're calling Resident Aliens, and we've been going through the past few weeks. And this series is all about asking and answering the question, how are we to now live as Christians in a society that is so quickly, uh, we are so quickly becoming the minority in the society? And the challenge for Christians is to learn to live wisely, to not assimilate or escape. God calls his people to be holy, which means we are to be distinct. We're to live distinct or holy and upright lives. And this has always been the call on God's people. This was the task that was given to Israel. Israel was meant to be a light to all nations. They were to reflect who God is to the nations. And Israel was to do this as a geopolitical nation state. That's part of how you are to understand the various laws that were given to Israel. These laws were meant to show that Israel is distinct from the kingdoms of the earth. That Israel was to live differently so that the world would understand the character of God. But now the church finds itself reflecting the character and nature of God, but not as a geopolitical nation state, but as a new humanity, as a people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation state, to live distinct and holy lives among the nations of the earth. The church itself is not a nation state, rather the church finds itself within all the other nations of the earth. So if our challenge is to not assimilate And also, on the other hand, to not escape. To assimilate would mean that we lose our distinctiveness. It would mean that we begin to look like the world around us. But the other challenge that Christians face is to simply escape. To just pull back. And honestly, that's probably closer to my own temptation. To remove myself and my family altogether from culture. A nice plot of land with the blacktop ends. Drive in once a week. Preach a sermon. And head out for a week. Amen. So the challenge for those of us that live in the city is either to lose our saltiness and to begin to look too much like the city or to despise the city and long to get out of it. Or the challenge if we live in a more rural area is to lose our saltiness by never actually engaging with non-Christians. So the book of Daniel is here to help us think about what it means to live as resident aliens. Resident, meaning we live in the nations among the people of the earth. We live in the culture where God has placed us, and yet we're aliens. This is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles. That's what Peter calls us in his epistle. We're to live such honorable lives among the pagans, is the language of 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a whole reason that we're going through the book right now. So listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. He says, actually, I'm going to read that in a moment. I want to say this first. The reason that we're going through the book of Daniel is that I want you to be wise, my friends. God wants us to be wise. Every cultural commentator that I've been reading for the last couple years 
says that the values of American culture have changed faster than at any other time in human history. The cultural opinion of what is right and wrong, what sexual ethics are, the nature of religious tolerance, these things have changed faster than at any other time in all of human history. We live in a very unique time in that regard. You know, Europe went through this transition much slower than we are. Europe, in some ways, was quicker at becoming a post-Christian society. But the transformation that happened here in the United States happened so rapidly. It happened in the matter of, in some cases, just four to eight years. It was the president of the United States who, at his first term, ran on the platform that he was against gay marriage. As Barack Obama. The thought of even considering that eight years later was just absurd to us. Of course, of course he's pro-gay marriage. That cultural opinion, just as it relates to sexual ethics, has dramatically changed faster than any other time in human history. So then how are we to live as Christians? As those that are living in an increasingly post-Christian society? as those that are quickly becoming the minority. We also find ourselves just weeks away from the presidential election. And both of the major political party candidates right now do not care about much of what we care about. Since 1980, evangelicals have largely voted with the Republican Party. And this year, there is a deep divide across evangelicals. There's an article right now, last week, in Christianity Today that suggests that this gap is largely a generational gap, that the divide among evangelicals in support or non-support of the Republican Party is largely a generational gap, that the older generation seems to be potentially supporting the candidate for holding on to any semblance of Christianity any semblance of religious liberty. And this article suggests that it's younger evangelicals, more those that are in my generation, that are more like, we're not going to lose our soul to vote for a morally reprehensible candidate. Andy Stanley, pastor at North Point Church in Atlanta last week, challenged the older in his congregation. He said, stop scaring the young people. One candidate promotes the culture of death and the other promotes intolerance towards immigrants and minorities and calls his own talk of sexual predation as locker room talk. It's absolutely morally reprehensible. So how do we prepare ourselves to live in this kind of America? God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and he said this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons, daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And that's where we find ourselves in this story. 
We find ourselves in a story where, in the book of Daniel where Israel, God's people, has been sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. They are no longer the predominant culture. They are a minority culture living among a pagan society. They're a minority cultural living among religious pluralism. And God tells them, don't decrease there. Plant gardens. Multiply. Seek the good of Babylon. And the story of Daniel really follows these four different characters. Daniel and his three friends. And the stories have been kind of going back and forth. Between Daniel's experience with some of these, with these uh, Babylonian kings and his three friends' experiences with these Babylonian kings. And there's this overriding message that's going through the book of Daniel, and that is that the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He puts into power those who he wills, and he takes down according to the counsel of his will alone. And the purpose of the book of Daniel is to give great hope to God's people, that in the midst of exile, in the midst of finding themselves in dire circumstances, God is still on his throne, he is still accomplishing his purposes, and he means this for his people's good. And that's the message that the book of Daniel is to communicate to us, living in 2016 in a post-Christian America. So this morning... We're looking at Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read it to us here in just a moment. And Daniel chapter 5, we will see the end of the Babylonian Empire. At the end of Daniel chapter 5, we see the end of the Babylonian Empire. It started in Genesis chapter 11 with the confusion of language. And it ends in Daniel chapter 5, again, with a mysterious, unknown message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read this text to us this morning. And we're going to see in what ways God is speaking to us about how to live in the Portland metro area. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that, they had, that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the kings and his lord, of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give an interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was taken from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, and you have drunk wine with them, from them. And you have praised the gods of gold, silver, Gold of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this was the writing inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end, Tekel. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we long to be a faithful people. Lord, Lord, I feel the prayer of Moses in Exodus 30 when he says, if you don't go with us, then don't send us out. God, we feel that in this culture, in this time. Lord, don't send us out here unless your presence goes with us. Father, we long to be your faithful people, people who are 
distinct from the world, Lord. People who don't live like the culture and the world around us, and yet people who radically seek the good and welfare of the city, who radically love our neighbors as ourselves, who lay down our lives for their sake. God, would you help us learn to see it, learn how to do it from this text this morning in this brief time that we have. We thank you, God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this party. So let me set the stage for us briefly here. So this is a huge party. There's a thousand people here, the text tells us a couple times. Um, But what we don't realize by initially looking at the text, we see sort of at the end. When it says that very night... Belshazzar was killed and the kingdom was taken from him. Now, this isn't just some sort of circumstantial, um, you know, some intruder that happened to come in and kill the the king here. Rather, what had just happened in the last week is that the Medo-Persian Empire was at the gate. The entire Babylonian army had been destroyed just 50 miles away from the city's center. The end of the kingdom as we know it was just about to happen. And in this sort of last moment of hubris, Belshazzar throws this extravagant sort of party. And in this party, it says even that he brought the concubines into the party, which itself is an interesting detail, because that's not normally the way that parties go. Yes, to have the royals there, yes, to have the nobles there, yes, to even have his wives there, fine. But to bring concubines into the party is saying something about the level of debauchery that's present in this party. This is a drunken, sexual kind of party. Okay? There's a lot of people there. And this is on the eve, the very night, rather, it's not the eve, it's the very night. The day before would have been the eve. It's the very night that the kingdom will be taken from the Chaldeans and given to the Medo-Persian Empire. Listen to Jeremiah 25. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. God had prophesied way before that the Babylonian empire will be brought to an end. He says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years and then I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Doesn't that say something miraculous about the sovereignty of God? That on the one hand, God is bringing his people Israel into exile because of their own disobedience. And they're to live under this Uh, dictator-type king who does not know and honor God. And yet at the same time, the sovereign Lord of the universe will punish the very nation that he sent his people into exile. What's striking, I started to read this book in the last week, and it's a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time. Uh, It's by Ernst Becker, and it's called The Denial of Death. And the reason I want to read it is because people that are a lot smarter than me quote it all the time. Keller quotes it all the time. Um, James James, uh, K.A. Smith quotes it all the time. Um, It's called The Denial of Death. And uh, I read the introduction this week, and that is all. (laughs) 
But in the introduction, it's called The Denial of Death, Ernst Becker is not a Christian, says this. He says, every culture has one main job, to stave off the sense of insignificance. Every culture has one main job, to stave off the sense of insignificance. And I think that we sort of see this in this fleeting way at the end of Belshazzar's life. His rule as we know it, as he knows it, is basically coming to an end. So in this moment of uh, hubris and this moment of, of trying to save face, he throws this wild party. And at this wild party, I think we find the three main ways of finding significance, sex, money and power, and religion. We briefly look at each of those. Sex, money or power, and religion. Finding significance through relationships or finding significance in other people. It's one of the ways in which we, um, we are so tempted to find our worth or our value in life. That if another human being says, you're attractive. If another human being says, I want you to be a sexual partner. If another human being says, I want to be with you, there's a sense in which we find our worth and significance in that. And we see that in the culture all around us here in Portland. We see this culture that says, do what feels right. Do what feels right even in terms of your relationships. Do what feels right in terms of your sexual relationships. I took my two kids that wear glasses to the optometrist, the ophthalmologist rather, this week, and I was sitting in the waiting room and I was reading just Portland Monthly, the magazine. And there's this little section in there that says how to have a successful polyamorous relationship. Okay? That means if you're married, how to have a successful relationship with another sexual partner and how to do so in a consenting fashion. And point number one was this is going to be really hard and difficult and cause a lot of emotional strain. <laughs> Point number two was make sure you share all the details with your spouse so there's no sense of jealousy. Yeah, that will work. That's going to make it all better. But there's this sense in which even finding one's significance in their own spouse isn't enough. So the culture around us says, well, then have multiple sexual partners. But Embedded in this entire idea is the sense and the, is the knowledge that it just won't ultimately and actually satisfy. But the challenge, though, is that even as Christians, there's a temptation for us to do it as well. Stanley Hauerwas wrote a book called Resident Aliens, the namesake for this sermon series. And um, in the book, he talks about what he calls uh, the myth of self-fulfillment or what he calls the self-fulfillment ethic. And he relates it to marriage among Christians. And he says that the challenge, well, let me just read you the quote. He says, what is destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primary institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. 
For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And that ethic has totally slipped into the Christian church, that the purpose of marriage is for our own self-fulfillment. It's that the institution of marriage is to find our own personal happiness. That the purpose of marriage is for us to find that right person who will actually make us happy. But don't we see, don't we see how closely, this is just another side of the coin of the sexual ethic that we live in, in this culture. It's just a more churched up version. Because really, as what Hauerwasch shows us, the real purpose of marriage is to find another person that we can lay our lives down for and we can actually love. Not for our own self-fulfillment, but for theirs. And as we're going to begin to see, one of the ways that we can be radically countercultural as Christians, as resident aliens, is that we don't live for ourselves. We don't just do what feels right. We've found and received the grace of God, the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can now lay our lives down for other people. We can now love our spouse as the other as the main person that God has put into our lives to lay our lives down for. And that, my friends, is a testimony to the watching world. That is one of the most significant ways, I think, that we will be resident aliens in this culture as we move forward. Because it just doesn't seem to me that this sexual ethic that pervades us can actually be tenable for very long. Because it denies the way that God has actually made us. It denies the very way that God has made us. And so the church is this quiet, prophetic voice declaring to the world what is right, the way that God made us to live, even the way that we live with one another in the context of our own marriages. The second thing here is this finding our significance in money or power. It says that they were drinking to the gods of gold and silver and iron and bronze. This was... Belshazzar finding his worth from power or success. And, and, and this slips into our lives as well. We try to achieve. We want to step out from the herd. We think we'll have significance if we're unique. We think we'll have significance if we're special. Do you know that uh, surveys of millennials, 90% of teenagers today say that they think they are unique or special That kind of defies the term if 90% of them think it. (laughs) We live in a culture that says you are unique, you are special, and part of that is absolutely true. Don't hear me. Everyone is beautifully, wonderfully, uniquely made in the image of God. Don't hear me downplay that. Don't hear me say that that's not the case because it's absolutely true. But there's a sense in which we want to rise above the herd. We want to step out from the pack. We want to be the special ones when the truth of the matter is that most of us are just average, okay? Most of us are just average. There's an article that I read last week in the Gospel Coalition and it was sort of more about the marriage thing, but it was called, bro, you're probably just a six. (laughs) You think... You think you're searching for this wife that's like a nine or ten, but maybe you should look in the mirror for a minute, okay? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Faithful are the wounds of a friend. (laughs) 
But the truth of the matter is that we want to find our significance in breaking free from the pack instead of seeing the massive value and weight that God bestows upon every single human being. And we know it's absolutely true because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God of the Bible and his own son, Jesus the Messiah, died for you. Which means you are massively significant. You are more valuable than all the jewels under the earth to him. The one who ultimately matters, the one who stands in the heavens says, you are the apple of my eye. And if that's true, my friends, that we don't need to posture and jockey for significance from the world around us. We can live in light of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that too is a testimony in being resident aliens in this culture. Well, third, religion. This is, again, from Ernst Becker, from the introduction. He says, how easily, a third way that we find our significance is through religion. He sacrifices to the gods, it says. How easily religious people will shed blood to assure themselves of their own righteousness. How easily religious people will shed blood to assure themselves of their own righteousness. That's the nature of religion. The nature of religion says, I perform, and therefore God owes me. Or I perform, I obey the moral code, and therefore I am more significant than you are. I am a religious person. I am a devout person. I don't live like you do. I homeschool my children. And therefore, I am more significant than you are. Religion is a very easy way to find our significance It is a very dangerous way to find our significance because it has a distorted view of who God is. Because all of the value, the very nature of Christianity is upside down from the nature of religion. All the other religions of the world say is, climb this ladder to get to God. But Jesus in John chapter 2 brings to our mind the image of Jacob's ladder dream and says, I am the one who's come down from heaven to meet you. Again, Ernst Becker says, every culture has one main job to stave off the sense of insignificance. The closer death comes to us, the more real this is. But our point, my point, is that this is so essential to being resident aliens about finding our hope, our identity, our significance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not in our sexual ethics, not in our power or money or status, and not even through our religious uh, adherence, but solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will make us to be a people who are free to actually live distinct holy lives in the world around us, to live as resident aliens. We need to keep going. Second point, just want to point for a couple minutes at this party crasher. The first one was the party. This is the party crasher. Daniel shows up to interpret this dream for Belshazzar. And he says, he indicts the king in verse 22. He says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, for you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. Stinging indictment to this king. I just want to show us a couple things from this text. A couple things that we need to see from Daniel, the party crasher, if we're going to live uh, distinct lives in this generation. 
The first one I want to show us is in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your awards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Why is this significant? Why does Daniel say, don't give me your robe, don't give me your chain? Well, I guess on the one hand, because he knows it's meaningless, because the kingdom's gone tomorrow. That's, that's one sense. But there's another sense, though. There's a humility, I think, in Daniel that all of Daniel's gifts, all of his interpretations were not his own. They were God-given to him. They were the very words of God that were given to Daniel. They were God's words that came from God, and Daniel functioned as a prophet, as it were. Which shows that Daniel had an absolute respect for the word of God. That God's words that were coming through him to the king as a prophet had massive weight and massive significance. I think there's a word for us there, my friends. I think there's a word for us that God's word must reign supreme if we're going to be resident aliens in this culture. God's word must be permeating from us. It must be our very uh, order for a rule for life and conduct, as it were. You know, there's, for, uh, for many, 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 many years, Daniel chapter 5 was a place that um, liberal scholars would go to disprove the Bible. Because this king, Belshazzar, occurs nowhere in all of history. All of ancient history, you can't find record of this king. Well, about 20 years ago, maybe longer, I think it said in the 70s, there was this canister that was found of this ancient scroll that finally mentions who Belshazzar is. And the reason that he hadn't been known up to this point in ancient history is because it actually was his father who was the king, Nebuchadnezzar. So this is about 25 years This is becoming kind of a factoid, but this is about 25 years after Nebuchadnezzar. There's been about four kings in this time, but these kings, each one, as they rise to power, they make it a couple years, and then they're murdered. So this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, kind of wises up, and he rules from 500 miles away. He's out on the Arabian Peninsula right now, and he's left his son in charge to rule, which is why the text says, whoever can give me the interpretation, I will make him third in charge. Because Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then whoever. So after that, liberal scholars stopped going to Daniel chapter 5 to disprove the Bible. But the point is, my friends, the point is, is that God's word has to be able to come into our lives and at times comfort us and at times contradict us. If God's word, if you only accept the parts of the Bible that you already agree with, and God's word never actually contradicts you, then you've made for yourself a God in your own image. You've made for yourself a God that you have after your own likeness. But in order for God to be God, if he really is who he says he is, then his word has to confront us and has to contradict the way we actually think. If God is not different than us, then he can't actually be of any benefit to us. Have you considered that? God's word must come and challenge us. God's word must come in and confront our thinking and we must be ready to humble and submit ourselves to it, which leads us to the second point that we can learn from this party crasher is that of pride. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. It's pride. The sin of pride is what has brought down the kingdom from Belshazzar. 
his pride, his hubris. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, one of the late chapters is called The Great Sin. And the great sin is the sin of pride. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasures of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. That's why C.S. Lewis calls it the great sin. The great sin of pride is one of wanting to be different and unique and distinct. The great sin of pride is actually at the heart of what sin actually is. The great sin of pride is at the heart of what sin actually is, which is a refusal of God's reign and authority in your life. At the heart of sin, it's a rejection of God's sovereign authority in your life. And that is a sin of pride. C.S. Lewis goes on to talk about the pride of anxiety, the pride of jealousy, the pride of anger, the pride of condescension. And says each of these manifestations at the heart of what they actually are is this sin of pride. You ever thought of that? You ever thought about anxiety is actually a manifestation of pride? Because anxiety at its core is saying, I know how the world should work. Anxiety at its core is saying, I know what I should have in my life right now, but I don't. I know what I need for the future, but I don't know if I have it. Well, the pride of jealousy, of wanting what someone else has, it's saying, I know that if I had what someone else has, I would be content. I know that I should have what someone else has. The pride of anger, the pride of getting frustrated at the kids. Do we... Do we discipline our children for their own good or do we discipline them for our own glory? I know I fall temptation to that. When the kids reflect on who I am, when they don't behave a certain way and it reflects on my character as a father. If something is of pride, then it means that it's something that can be repented of. If the root of something is of pride, then it's something that can be repented of. And I realize these are, these are ailments, these are symptoms in our lives that are very deep, that are very challenging to deal with. And yet at some point in our lives, we need to learn to repent of them. We need to learn, if Jesus can say as a command, do not be anxious. That's an imperative. That's a command then we can find in ourselves, we can find grace in the gospel to say, God, I know that you know what's going on. I don't. I don't know what's going on, so I repent of that. Repentance just says, I'm no longer going to look at the way I see things, but I'm going to turn in faith and trust to God. I'm going to say, God, I'm no longer going to put my hope in what I think should happen. I'm no longer going to have my mind considering what I think I should have. I'm not going to rest my heart on unsurety. I'm going to rest my heart on your sovereign goodness in my life. I'm going to choose to trust your character. I know that because of the gospel, you are absolutely gracious and loving to me. You mean all things for my good. So I'm going to turn in faith and believe that. That's what it means to repent of pride. 
what it means to repent of anxiety. I was meditating, I was talking to Vanessa last night about, um, about just, just, just our lives and just how, how grateful I am for our life and, and the things that God's given us. And we just were reflecting on the fact that everything that we have is of grace. Everything. I started just reflecting on everything that I am as a human being is all of grace. I didn't choose where I would be born. I didn't choose who my family would be. I didn't choose what kind of mind I would have. I didn't choose if I'd be able to speak or not. I didn't choose any of that. I didn't choose if I'd be able to uh, understand something when I read it. Everything that I have, everything that you have, my friends, is all of grace to you. Everything you have is absolutely a gift. The actual number of decisions that you can actually make is so minute compared to what has already just been given to you by God. Yeah, you have free will, but your level of free will is so confined to all of your circumstances that you couldn't ever even possibly touch. You weren't born in 12th century Tibet on the side of a mountain. So I tell my kids at night when I lay them down to sleep, I say, did you choose where you would be born? No. Did you choose who your family would be? No. You were born into this family. And you were born into this family so that you could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and so that God would save you. You didn't choose any of that. God is incredibly gracious and kind to you. When we see that, my friends, doesn't it just sort of melt pride away? It just sort of melts pride away. It melts hubris away. And when we repent of our pride and when we repent of our own self-loathing or our anxiety or whatever it is and we turn in faith and trust to God, you know what we actually get in that moment? We get God. If God bestowed upon us all the gifts under the sea, we'd have, that'd be like seaweed. If God bestowed upon us all the gifts under heaven, we were the smartest, we had the most money, we had all the gifts and, and talents that we ever want and he kept from him, us himself. He would be absolutely cruel and harsh and unkind to us. But if he withheld all of that back and just gave, him his, gave us himself, he would be infinitely merciful, kind, gracious, and generous to us. And he gives us himself. And all we need to do, my friends, is access it by faith, turning in faith and trust to him. Well... Let me turn to this in conclusion. Daniel has now been, it's been 25 years since this last scene. We turn the, when, we, when, you, when you turn from the end of chapter four to the beginning of chapter five, it's 25 years. And there can be this temptation, I think, to look at Daniel's life and so sort of see it as kind of fantastical and spectacular and outrageous. And, and in some ways it is. I mean, many of us, most of us will probably never have an audience before, uh, you know, a king or a mayor or a president or, or someone like that with the opportunity to speak such prophetic words into their lives. But let us not forget that most of Daniel's life was just ordinary. He just was a faithful presence where God had placed him. He was obeying God's command from Jeremiah 29. You know, there's a place in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10. And it's where Jesus commissions his disciples to go two by two. And he commissions them to, to go preach grace, 
to cast out demons and to heal. He gives them those three charges. And they go around doing those things and they come back and they marvel at Jesus. They say, they, it, the demons are cast out in your name, so on. Well, the next chapter is Luke chapter 11. And that's the scene where Jesus um, casts out the demoniac. And they challenge him. They say, is that in the name of Beelzebub? And he sort of gives them their backwards logic. Well, the house can't be divided against itself and so on. But then he says this in verse 1120. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the only time Jesus uses that phrase, finger of God. And this phrase, finger of God, it occurs in Exodus. It's the phrase that's used about uh, uh, the plagues and so on. And it's used here in Daniel chapter 5. And I think there's something instructive here. I think, it's, I think Jesus is being deliberate. And commentators agree with me. Actually, I probably agree with the commentators. <laughs> that Jesus is doing something unique and distinct in Luke 11.20 by bringing up this imagery of the finger. One commentator says that the writing on the wall now is the people of God. And the writing on the wall for now isn't the writing of condemnation. The writing on the wall now is the preaching of grace, the healing of the sick, and the casting out of the demons. And this commentator says this. He says, are we legible? Are our lives distinctly different? It means that, yes, we may have a prophetic voice at times, and we may need to show up to the party of debauchery and say, shouldn't you be ashamed of yourselves? Your lives are required of you this very night. That may happen. But the, the majority mark of our lives is that of bringing the kingdom to bear in this place by preaching grace, healing the sick, and casting out demons. And it's the way in which Jesus says the world will know that's how you know that the kingdom has come upon you. See, because our king was not like Belshazzar. Our king was not like that on the eve of his betrayal. On the eve of his betrayal, he did not throw a big party of hubris and debauchery. On the eve of his betrayal, he sought the Father in utter humility. He found himself in the garden praying that the will of the Father would be done. On the night of his betrayal, he was utterly alone. He was alone, not even with the presence of his very friends. A stark contrast, indeed, between the king of the world and this little vice-regent, Belshazzar. But it's through the king of the world It's through winning through losing. It's through laying down his life that he was raised up again. It's through laying down his life that he brings the kingdom to us. It's through weakness, my friends. And my friends, if we're going to live as resident aliens in this culture at this time, we must also need to learn how to live in weakness. That the kingdom is going to come not through might, not through strength, not through power, but by laying down our lives for the world around us, preaching grace, healing the sick, and casting out demons. And that is how God is going to bring his kingdom to bear, and we live as resident aliens. Let us pray. Father, we are gracious. 
you are gracious and we are grateful. Lord, we just long for your kingdom to come. We long to be a people who live in light of your glory. We long to be a people who long for this dying generation, Lord. God, we're grateful for all that you've done for us. We're grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we do every week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we take this covenant meal together, we are declaring our unity to one another, our solidarity with one another because of the finished work of Jesus. We're acknowledging his death, resurrection, and we're acknowledging that he will come again. We're proclaiming that. So the table is open to all who have repented of their sins and trust Jesus Christ alone for all the forgiveness of their sins, been baptized. If that uh, defines you and you're not a member of this church but are visiting from another church, we invite you to partake with us. You can come up row by row and take the elements back to your seat uh, and then one of the elders will lead us in communion together.